0: Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. Welcome back. How was WorkbenchCon? WorkbenchCon was good, although I must say I am extremely disappointed with how cold it was in Atlanta. We got there and it was colder in Atlanta than it was back in Ottawa, and uh it was wet and raining and I think the only times I went outside the entire weekend were to get to the hotel and to return from the hotel to the airport. It was uh it was not pleasant weather wise down in Atlanta.
1: So was the conference held within the hotel itself then?
0: The hotel was uh nice. It was it's attached to one of the convention centers, one of the large convention centers in Atlanta, so uh, even though it wasn't in the hotel itself, we didn't actually have to leave the hotel to be able to get from from our room to the conference center itself. So that was nice. We didn't have to go outside. Actually, I lie. I did go outside for a brief minute. We'll talk about that in a minute. Um, we we got a chance to check out some welders and a plasma cutter, um, and that was uh, uh, understandably held outside, not not indoors. And you still have all your fingers. I I'm not going to cut my finger off with a plasma cutter. <laughs> <laughs> maybe a, you know, maybe a table saw or something, but uh, not a plasma cutter. <laughs> so, yeah, we uh we uh didn't really go outside very much during that trip, but it was uh it was a worthwhile trip, a lot of fun, exhausting as always. Uh our flights were miserably delayed. Uh, every single flight that we had was delayed, including one that was outright canceled. So, that was always fun. the wonders if modern air travel gets you anywhere you want to go, but not when you want to get there.
1: Mhm. So I saw early on in in your time there, you you picked up a new fidget spinner.
0: A friend of ours that we've uh, we met a, a couple of years ago while we were over in Birmingham at uh, Maker Central, uh, Bernie Solo. He does a uh, a great YouTube channel called Works by Solo, and uh, he's been sort of playing around with the idea of of making this little fidget spinner. Um, and uh, of course, he's a couple of years too late to the fidget spinner craze, but that's fine. He was he was mostly doing this for fun and uh, and sort of as a way of building out this product. And so he's been working on this for the last couple of months. Uh, he's been using a, a great little service bureau down in the States called Send Cut Send, uh, which is a great name. They're a laser cutting service. And so they're using fiber lasers to cut all sorts of different materials, uh, all sorts of different metals that uh, normally are challenging to cut. Like if you're trying to use just a CO2 laser, for instance, you're not going to be able to cut most of these metals. And so they're using fiber lasers to cut it. So you just send them the drawings of what it is that you're doing, like send them, you know, AutoCAD files or vector files or whatever of what it is that you want to cut. Tell them what material it is that you want, uh, what thickness it is that you want, and they cut the material for you and send it back. So he was having these uh, all these parts cut, including, uh, well, in this case, he was using... Sprockets and chain to make this little fidget spinner. Uh, we'll we'll include a link to uh, my uh, Instagram post on it, as well as to the video that Bernie put up on YouTube about it, um, and you can see exactly what we mean. But uh, yeah, he was using send, cut send to cut the the design and and sort of uh, make this make the parts for this uh, this project. So it was uh, sort of a fun little project, and and Rich and I were happy to support him by uh, we we each picked up one of these spinners. Of course we're Playing around with them all weekend, and my forearm is a little sore from from playing with this fidget spinner constantly. So I gotta gotta ease back on it.
1: I can imagine. It looks like quite the ominous fidget spinner. It's not something I would give to a a three or four year old.
0: No, it's it's not your your cheap injection molded plastic spinner. It's uh, it has some certainly has some heft to it. And one of the things that I love about Bernie is that he knows exactly the market is that uh, that he's sending this out into. And so it includes a an Allen wrench to be able to disassemble it, as well as instructions on how to disassemble it and start modding it yourself. So I've already got some ideas that I'm uh, I'm gonna probably make a couple of custom pieces for it to uh, make mine stand out a little bit from everyone else's. So
1: you mentioned you got a chance to play some plasma cutters as well.
0: Yeah, one of the one of the nice things about conferences like this is that there tend to be uh, some large uh, brand name sponsors that show up, um, mostly because in this case, WorkbenchCon is geared towards uh, content creators, uh, primarily YouTubers. So you, you get a lot of large name brands that show up, like Home Depot, for instance, was the big name brand sponsor of the of the show. And so they bring out stuff to to show off and things like that. And they're trying to attract people who will then you know, talk about them on their YouTube channel and and sort of put that out in the world. And one of the one of the companies that showed up was ESAB, uh, who I had never heard of. Uh, apparently, they're a Swedish company. I think it was a Swedish company, um, and they are uh, the world leader in welders. You know, if you if you watch in North America, if you look around North America, you tend to see welders from either Lincoln Electric or Miller. Uh, so. If you're, if you're looking on a YouTube channel and you see a red welder, then it's a Lincoln welder. If you see a blue one, then it's a Miller. And those tend to be the two that you see everywhere. And if you, in fact, if you walk into a welding store here in Ottawa, those are the two brands that you'll see, uh, unless you're going to, to somewhere cheap like a Harbor Freight or a Princess Auto. And then you'll see these really low-end, uh, off-brand um, welders that are, that are being mass-produced in China and are, are unfortunately really not worth your time and effort. Um, so, you know, I hadn't, I'd never heard of ESAB, but apparently worldwide they are much bigger than either Lincoln or, uh, or Miller. But because they're they're not really in the North American market, um, you know, they don't really get a lot of uh, coverage over here. So they're starting to push into North America a little bit, and because of that, they decided to come out to Workbench Con, and they had a truck set up with a, uh, uh, with a generator. And they had a bunch of welders and a bunch of different plasma cutters set up there, and so we got a chance to go out and experiment with them and and play with them uh so there's a, a little bit of footage of me on on Rich's instagram feed uh watching me cutting some stuff with a plasma cutter and uh maybe I don't know if you posted any of the welding ones that uh, that we did so yeah it was um it was kind of nice to play with it i had um I have never actually played with a a plasma cutter before uh although we have one in the shop. Um, we, uh, we did order a uh, CNC plasma cutter. And we're waiting for the CNC part to show up. But we have the, we have a plasma cutter already. And uh, we hadn't actually played with it yet. We, had, we hadn't bothered unboxing it. And uh, that ex- that sort of couple of minutes of playing with the plasma cutter in Atlanta convinced us to pull it out of the box. So uh, we actually yanked it out of the box today. And we were playing around with cutting cutting stuff with it. And taking super slow mo video of us cutting stuff because one of the lovely things about a plasma cutter is that you get these beautiful sprays of sparks flying everywhere, which looks extremely dramatic at 240 frames a second. So it's uh, yeah, we were able to to sort of play around with that a little bit and and uh, learn about their their plasma cutters, uh, which was which was kind of nice.
1: Yeah, apart from something like, say, a proto saber, it's probably a plasma cutter is probably the closest thing you can get to using something like a lightsaber in in real life. Oh
0: yeah, and it's it's terrifying, absolutely terrifying, how quickly it will cut through a piece of steel. You 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 can't really appreciate how how fast it cuts until you're you're cutting through a quarter inch piece of steel, and the guy's telling you you need to move faster, and I'm like, I thought I was moving fast, and he's like, No, no you need to move faster. <laughs> I'm just like, okay. <laughs> and and even today I was cutting through some, you know, we had some uh, quarter inch mild steel today, we had some aluminum, we had some stainless steel. And you know, like with the uh, the aluminum, I was cutting pretty much as fast as I could, you know, that I was comfortable with and sort of still being in control of it. And I was still getting, you know, sort of slightly ragged cuts because it was um, it wasn't it just wasn't moving fast enough so yeah it's it's unbelievable how quickly you can cut through things, and I think the one that we have now it, it's not i mean it's not a really really high end plasma cutter. you can certainly get more powerful ones than the one we have, and even then, I think it'll cut through half inch steel so it's you know it's it's a sizable piece of kit in terms of what it can do, what it can accomplish, and it's certainly one of those force multipliers in a shop in terms of being able to rapidly sort of rough cut material that otherwise would be very challenging to cut up because in some cases you've got large sheets which you can't you just can't put into a bandsaw or you can't um you know maybe cutting it with an angle grinder would be really really awkward and slow and with this thing you, you just you just whip through it it doesn't you know it takes you no time at all
1: You just did a few minutes ago about cutting fingers off in a table saw and another piece of kit you guys have around the studio there that i had never encountered before until seeing it there is an invention called the the saw stop and i believe they were a sponsor there at WorkbenchCon as well
0: yeah yeah saw stop is is um i guess it's a, a market reaction to to some of the lawsuits that started happening a few years ago there there was there was a particular lawsuit that happened i can't remember which brand it was that was sued but this guy had bought a you know one of these table saws and uh, one of these sort of job site table saws uh proceeded to take all the safety features off of the table saw and then managed to cut off several of his fingers in the saw because of course table saw doesn't care whether it's cutting wood or you know or finger it makes no difference it just cuts through the you know, whatever it is that you you shove into it, and uh, he successfully sued this company and said, "Oh, you should have done something to make it impossible for me to to be able to actually cut off my fingers," which I think is ridiculous. Anyway, um, out of I don't know if it was out of that particular lawsuit or if, if they had already brought come to market with something uh, sooner than that, but uh, SawStop created this table saw, which it's it's basically impossible to cut your finger off. Um, they've set it up so that I think it's, I think it's based on a capacitive system. And so when it feels anything on the blade that's capacitive, it clamps this brake, this aluminum brake onto the blade and drops the whole motor mount and blade unit into the table saw where it can't, you know, so the blade isn't exposed. And it does it in a fraction of a second, and uh, it's it's quite impressive to see this uh, see these things in action. And uh, one of the things they like to do is they like to do demonstrations of this thing using a um, uh, using a hot dog, an uncooked hot dog, which sort of looks and feels a lot like a, a human finger. And so they'll sit there and they'll slowly cut a piece of wood with a with this hot dog on top of it. And this the moment that blade touches the hot dog, it will you know it will grab the um the blade and shove it down into the uh, into the body uh it's it's incredibly impressive and there's basically a minor mark on the hot dog it, you know you you can almost not tell where this hot dog was hit with the blade it's uh it's quite impressive
1: and it, it used to be that the the inventor of this would actually use his own fingers to to demonstrate that but it
0: yeah there is, there. Yeah, you couldn't pay me enough money to shove my finger into one of these things. I don't care how. <laughs> I, you know, I'm sort of of two minds about it. It's, it's you know, as, as you mentioned, it's a, it's a tool that we've now got in the shop. Rich uh, decided to buy one as a, uh, as a new table saw for the shop. He already had a Delta table saw that he'd been using for years, and wanted to get a, a newer table saw and a second table saw, uh, just because there's often times where you want to be able to have one table saw set up with, let's say, dado a dado stack for for cutting a wider channel and some wood. But you also want to be able to have a single blade set up so that you can easily go back and forth between the two. And, I, you know, it's a bit of a luxury having two table saws. First off, we have enough room for two table saws, which which is uh, an absolute luxury. Uh, but also being able to keep the, the setup uh, on two different saws means that you can quickly go back and forth between the two. and uh, And it saves you a huge amount of time in terms of setup and everything. Um, so that's nice. And then also there's the benefit of being able to use the second saw as an outfeed table for the first saw. So if you're cutting something large, like a, um, you know, sheet of plywood or something like that, then you can easily uh, outfeed the, the sheet of plywood onto the other table and it doesn't do weird things. So Rich uh, Rich bought this uh, saw stop table saw and Regardless of the saw stop part of it, you know, the actual safety feature that, that prevents it from cutting your finger off, uh, I have to say that it is a beautiful saw. It is incredibly well designed and uh, has has a lot of really nice features to it. Uh, they, they clearly put some time and effort into, into making a premium table saw, which is nice to see. Uh, so you're not just buying it because it's got this safety feature built into it. Uh, you can comfortably buy it because frankly, it's a a really, really well-built table saw. Uh, so yeah, that's, uh, that's in the shop. We've used it a couple of times and, um, I have to say it's a, it, it is a joy to use.
1: And for anyone who may not be familiar with what capacitance is, like our bodies are conductive. Uh, so you, electricity will pass through our, our bodies and this is how our, our, the touch screens on our, our phones and, and tablets and, and whatnot all work. So what this device does is effectively turns the the surface of the the saw blade into a sensor in the same way that the the surface of your your tablet or your phone is is touch sensitive and as soon as it it feels anything uh at all coming through that will conduct electricity uh, it's gonna trigger the mechanism to, to stop the saw because wood itself is, is not conductive it's it's resistive in its in its dry state If if you get wood wet it's also going to conduct electricity. So I would not advise cutting any wet wood on an ASOS stop because you're going to be out uh, a bit of money having to replace the the, the mechanism uh, that keeps your fingers safe when you're cutting dry wood.
0: Yeah, they actually mention that uh, you don't want to cut wet wood uh, with it, that it will, uh, it will trigger it, and also metal. If you're cutting metal with it, um, understandably, that will do it. Uh, but there is a way of actually disabling the safety feature uh, so you can um, disable that uh, that that saw stop feature on it uh, so that if you do happen to have let's say particularly wet wood that you're trying to cut up then you can disable it fire up the saw cut your wet wood you don't have to worry about the um, the saw stop engaging and then you can uh, you can then disable uh, or I guess re-enable that uh, uh, that safety feature and that way you don't have to worry about it so you just have to be really careful when you're cutting the wet wood and not stick your hand in there Although, again, I I don't understand when people cut their hands on table saws. Like I've I've been using table saws since I was a kid, and I, I just I don't I have never put my finger anywhere near a spinning blade on a table saw. I just I don't understand how people do it, but it, it often obviously happens enough that um, you know that it's a, an issue. Oh, and I should mention as well when the brake goes off on the table saw, uh, along with needing to replace the brake that's on it. You do also have to replace the blade as well, uh, because you you're basically shoving a piece of aluminum into a piece of serrated aluminum into the the spinning blade, and so the blade effectively welds itself into that that piece of aluminum. Uh, So it's I'm sure you could probably dig it out, but it's not worth it because your blade would be destroyed. Mm -hmm. Uh, So you're you're repairing the replacing the blade as well as the actual um, brake mechanism.
1: But all in all, uh. Absolutely remarkable invention. I was very impressed by it uh, once I I was introduced to it by you guys. While we're on the the subject of your new studio, in the time since we recorded last, you guys have started dropping some videos on YouTube, showing off the the new space. So congratulations on that.
0: Thank you. Yeah, we've uh, started posting videos up on Rich's channel, uh, Lowen Design channel on uh, YouTube. We'll have a link to that in the show notes if you want to go check it out and we've had uh, three videos up there now the first one is from the very first day that we had the keys to the shop so uh, it was hours after we got access to the uh, to the new studio space and it's a brief walk through uh, rich is uh, sort of walking through the the space and showing off exactly how it is the when we got it and uh, giving some ideas about what we think we're going to do with the space it's funny watching these these old videos you know i've been editing some of them uh recently and seeing these old videos first of all seeing just how different the space is now compared to what it was then uh because that was the middle of November when we shot that uh, that first video and then uh, on top of that of course some of the decisions that we were saying oh yeah we're th- we're, th- we're definitely going to do this and we've we've certainly changed our mind on a few things uh so it's it's kind of nice to see and and it's nice to have that uh that process documented so there's a few videos up there you start to see some of the changes that are happening and uh we're we've got a few more that we're that we've already filmed that are getting us up to the sort of the the uh, current day um today we were shooting video of the new led lights that we were putting in and uh we've also uh shot footage about a, a bunch of other things including the electrical work that we had done and uh so we're it's it's kind of nice to be able to document this and be able to actually talk about what we're doing because a lot of people are curious they've never had a chance to build out a shop like this so it's it's nice for them to see what's going on, and then on top of that, it's nice for us to have a, a sort of documentation about where we where we began and just how far we've actually come in the last couple of months.
1: Mm-hmm. It's, it's really remarkable, and the lights you mentioned too, also remarkable. How much power those things punch out?
0: <laughs> <laughs> for for people who've uh, who've been sort of hanging around in the YouTube space and looking at at machine shops and stuff like that uh a brand that came to my attention eh, maybe about a year and a half ago uh one of the youtube channels i follow they ordered some of their fans and this is the the big ass fan company uh they've got a a donkey as their logo on the um, on the side of their box and uh when they say big ass fans they make some truly big ass fans uh like i think they've got one that's 30 feet in diameter absolutely massive massive fans uh designed for pushing uh heat down in the winter and sucking it up in the summer so that you can uh, you can get the air conditioning down to where people are. And along with the fans, they also make some unbelievable LED lighting. And so we ordered a bunch of LED lighting. The shop space had uh, a sort of a measly number of fluorescent tubes in there. And during the day, it's not so bad because we have this huge south-facing window, which uh, allows in a huge amount of light. But... Even then on an overcast day like today or, you know, if you're working after hours or I guess in the winter, it's not necessarily after hours. It's just, you know, sort of the middle of the afternoon when the sun goes down. Um, You know, it was pretty dark in there and it wasn't really comfortable to work with the the, the small amount of light that the fluorescents were putting out. So we bought a bunch of their uh, LED lights and we finally finished installing those today. And it is remarkable the transformation that it makes. It's uh, it's it's quite impressive just how much light those things throw. So, I'm um, uh, I'm really happy we got them and that we installed them. We had talked about a couple of other uh, solutions that we'd we'd thought about, and uh, frankly, this is these, these things are amazing. Uh, I would highly recommend them to anybody who's looking to put a large amount of light in either an existing shop or a new shop. They're uh, they're absolutely remarkable.
1: You mentioned the the Home Depot was uh, a major sponsor of Workbench Con. How do you think they felt about uh, one of the the presenters saying that uh, the Home Depot is the, the worst place to to pick up plywood?
0: Yeah, it was uh, it was kind of entertaining. I, I don't know if that uh, I don't know if they heard about that or not. It's funny because in the states, Home Depot is really different as you go into different regions, especially when it comes to wood products. And they do really source a lot of their products locally, and when I say locally, I don't necessarily mean you know they're not sourcing lumber here in Ottawa, for instance, uh, but they're sourcing it sort of local to this they're sourcing it local to this region, and so for instance, when you buy dimensional lumber here in Ottawa and you're you're using it for building let's say a uh, you know regular stick frame construction, then you're getting think it's, is it spruce that you're getting up here? It's something, it's something like that. It's a, a really crappy sort of very fast growing softwood. But when you go into some parts of the U.S., like for instance, you go down into the Tennessee area, you start getting southern white pine. And the reason they're using southern white pine for the dimensional lumber is because it happens to be really, really cheap down there. But it's so much nicer than the stuff that we get up here and um and so the you do get some some big variance in terms of what uh, what what's available in terms of wood products and the funny thing is that up here yeah so they tend to be better a better place for buying plywood than Lowe's or Rona is here in the Ottawa area. Yeah, so we bought some some high grade plywood from Rona and it was absolutely horrible stuff. It was uh compared to the stuff that we bought from from Home Depot up here in the past, it was really not very good. So going forward, we're actually buying that stuff from Home Depot. But in some parts of the world, the plywood that you're getting from Home Depot is absolutely miserable. And so, yeah, Stevie, the area that Stevie's in, I don't remember where she's from, but uh, certainly it was not the best place to buy it. And oftentimes, if you're looking for good quality wood, eh, Home Depot is probably not your best best place. You know, if you're if you're buying construction grade lumber, then that's fine. But If you're looking for quality hardwood, then don't go to your Home Depot. You can find some of it, but you are really going to overpay for whatever it is that you get. Uh, You're better off finding local wood suppliers. Uh, They'll be able to hook you up with much better quality wood and uh, often uh, a much better selection of wood than what Home Depot will get you and then at a fraction of the price of what Home Depot is going to be able to charge you for it.
1: And you guys have been going through quite a bit of wood, building all the, the workbenches and, and shelving that, that you've put up in the, the last couple of
0: weeks. Yeah, we've uh, we've gone through quite a bit of uh, quite a bit of lumber in there. Uh, we've got a, an entire wall of workbenches at this point, basically, and we've got a couple of rolling work, rolling workbenches that are in there. Uh, that's something else we're filming some video for is the uh, sort of the standard the low end standard bench. Which um, Rich created in his shop originally, and we've sort of standardized on for our for our work in there. So yeah, we've gone through quite a bit of lumber, quite a bit of plywood, trying to get those things set up. Uh, but it's so nice having large surface, large horizontal surfaces now to be able to work on. Uh, it makes such a difference when um, when it comes to getting things done in a, in a shop space. So yeah, slowly but surely we're we're getting various workplaces set up. Certainly the wood side of the of the shop is. Uh, is getting much closer to actually uh, being up and running and ready to go um, on the metalwork side a friend of the show Paul Burberry came out a few weekends ago and helped me level up some of the machines. Uh, it is important with machining equipment, especially precision machines that you actually level them properly uh, they don't tend to work very well if you don't level them uh, you end up with slight twist in the bed if it's a lathe um, and so you end up with inaccuracies as you're turning things. And so it's extremely important that you, A, mount them so that they're, they're rigid and they're, they're on a solid surface. But then on top of that, once they're on that solid surface, you really do need to make sure that they're actually level. Otherwise, you're not going to get accurate results out of the machine. And in some cases, like the the 16-inch Bend that I have, the, the really large lathe that I have, uh, it's amazing how much of a difference it makes in how the carriage moves back and forth. You know, there's a big wheel on the front of the carriage to move it from one end of the, the bed to another. And before we leveled it up, it, it actually took some effort to move. And now that it's all leveled and it's, it's all straight and we've taken the twist out of the bed, it's, it's incredible just how free moving that, um, that large carriage is. So it, it does make a difference. And if you're, if you're concerned about accuracy when it comes to your turning in particular, you really do need to make sure that you actually level them properly and, and take care when you're when you're setting up these machines.
1: Anyone who, who may not have caught previous episodes, I think it'd be very easy to underestimate uh, just how many benches you're talking about when you say that you have a, a full <laughs> wall of benches and, and shelving now. So yeah, uh, it's a
0: that wall is yeah that wall is a hundred feet long. Uh, actually, just to be accurate and to, to annoy Rich, it's it's actually ninety six feet long. <laughs> And then on top of that, I I guess we've, you know, we're not using all 96 feet for workbenches. One, you know, one section of it's going to have the uh, richest CNC router set up on it. And uh, my welding, or not my welding, my casting setup is going to be set up on another section of it. And we've got another bit that's set up for uh, welding and plasma cutting. And then there's a a 12 foot wide roll up door uh, on part of it as well. So the entire 96 feet is not covered with workbenches, but uh, it is. A significant amount of it is actually covered in workbenches, which is nice. And so uh, I, I'll have to do a count tomorrow and see just how how many feet of linear feet of workbench we have on that wall now. But it's it's pretty impressive, and a lot of it's continuous. I can think there's at least twenty four feet of continuous bench space on that wall right now, for sure, and probably more. So it it is nice having that much bench space.
1: And the system you
0: use to mount the the shelf is quite clever as well. We used a French cleat system for mounting the shelving units to the wall. Uh, that's something we've done a quick video on as well to, to show off what we're doing. Uh, so a French cleat uses uh, a pair of angled pieces of wood that uh, sort of lock into each other. And so you, you put one board up against the wall and you actually screw it to the wall with a 45 degree angle sort of going down into the wall itself. And then you make a matching piece that goes on the backside of the cabinet. And then you just basically hang it on there and the weight of that shelving unit will pull it down into that dovetail basically and lock it in place. But the nice thing is that you just have to lift up the bottom of it and you can comfortably slide that shelving unit along the wall as far as you have a French cleat on there. Uh, So it's a, a very nice way to very quickly mount this sort of thing, you know, this sort of a a heavy cabinet or heavy uh, shelf unit like what we've got, and be able to quickly mount it on a wall, move them around as you need to, and get them in the right place. And then, of course, you can still secure them to the wall afterwards if you want to, if you don't want it moving around on you afterwards. Uh, But it's a a really nice system. Uh, Rich has used it in the past for a lot of different work, and you often see it in high-end cabinetry work where you're you're doing a kitchen, let's say, and and you'll often mount... Uh, cabinets kitchen cabinets to a wall using a french cleat system like this and uh yeah it's a it's a great system uh this is actually this our ikea kitchen that we have in the gallery space um the, you'll see that in the third video i think uh that actually has a similar sort of french cleat system although ikea is using um, a metal strip to do it instead of a um in our case we're using a three quarter inch piece of plywood uh so they're they're using a slightly more efficient system if you're mass producing the furniture. Uh but in our case it's you know it's it was easy just to use a uh three quarter inch strip of plywood and, and put a forty five degree bevel on it. And uh yeah, it makes it makes the installation go so fast. It's uh it's quite impressive.
1: And have your lathes all found a, a home now that you've got the electrical drops
0: in? The lathes are all in place or at least the ones that um that I'm I'm most concerned of. well, I shouldn't say all the lathes are two of the lathes have a home. Um, two of the many lathes have a home right now. Uh, so the the Cromwell lathe, which is what I use my as my precision lathe, my large precision lathe, and really what I tend to be doing um, casework on these days, uh, watch casework. Uh, that has a home and it's been leveled and it's set up. And then the large 16-inch south-bend lathe, that's been set up and and um, configured. Rich's 10 by 22 metal lathe that's in place and and um sort of set up we haven't really used it or had much need for it but that is there and ready to go uh, my watchmaking lathes those haven't been set up yet we still haven't worked on the upstairs office slash shop space so uh that that's still waiting for for some more work to be done up there before i get the watchmaking uh, lathes up and running up there
1: and you Recently, uh, sent me a, a new uh, shop shop watch. You're, you're considering getting. I don't. I don't know. This this doesn't sit well with me. This particular timepiece, but I'm I impressed by how well received it appears to have been by by the general populace.
0: <laughs> I'm thinking it could be the perfect shop watch, or maybe the perfect dive watch. Yeah, it's a, a Kickstarter that uh, that somebody. Oh, Rich was. Yeah, of course it was Rich who sent me this. And you know, this watch is based on a Casio F91W, which is a a very, very mass-produced, very cheap watch. And what they decided to do was they 3D printed a resin case to put the movement into. And so they dropped the movement in, and then they fill up the space with liquid resin and cure that resin afterwards. So it's essentially a solid state watch by the time it's done. Uh being an electronic watch of course it doesn't you don't need to be able to wind it or anything like that. Um the battery is in the back and and it gets captured in there with uh you know along with uh with the movement itself. So yeah, they've uh they've created this solid state watch out of uh, basically a solid block of resin with a uh, this Casio uh, electronic movement inside of it. And uh, I, I could tell when I sent it to you that you were absolutely horrified by the idea.
1: Oh, horrified is a bit strong, but uh, it's not, <laughs> not my cup of tea.
0: It is amusing because the idea behind it is that um, if you can't, they will set it to whatever your uh, time zone is when you purchase it. They'll ask you what time zone you're in so you can get it set to Eastern Time or GMT or whatever you want. And once it's set, that's it. You can't, readjust it you can't fix the time on it if it wanders and it probably will wander then too bad it's just going to be off a little bit and they expect the battery life should be somewhere around 10 years Uh, so you're going to have a 10-year watch and after that it shuts down so it's sort of an amusing idea i can understand why it's why it's sort of hit, hit enough popularity on, uh, on, in, on Kickstarter just because it is one of those things that, uh, that will sort of get some attention. Watches in general get attention on Kickstarter, but this is sort of an amusing idea. And, uh, yeah, as you sort of mentioned in the lead into this, it, it may be the perfect shop watch because A, it's cheap and pretty much indestructible, right? If, um, if it gets scratched up or whatever, I just need to Bring it over to the buffing wheel and and buff out the the scratches in it and and I'm good to go. So maybe hey, maybe may the perfect shop watch for me. Yeah, it's just the
1: it epitomizes the the disposable, finite nature of a lot of, of consumer products these days. I have to say that the name bothered me a little bit too because I mean the the Casio in and of itself is a, a solid state product in, in the electronics sense. So it's not like that this suddenly makes it solid state. I guess in more of the, the noun sense, uh it, it is more solid state because absolutely nothing about it can can move any longer. You can't push any of the buttons. Hey,
0: it is what it is, to each their own. It it's kind of amusing. Um I, I may back it. I haven't decided yet. And uh, you know, just for just for giggles. Yeah, I'm sure I'm sure uh, you'll have plenty
1: of fun with it if you do. <laughs>
0: and as I said, it's it's sort of the perfect uh perfect thing. And uh, um um you know again it might be the perfect uh, perfect dive watch uh, i mean it's it's completely sealed uh no i say perfect dive watch the thing would be horribly illegible under any sort of distance underwater and in, in no
1: way useful to a diver apart from
0: no 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 and and that's right it has none of the useful features of a, that a diver needs and you can't get to, you can't even get to the backlight button on it so you know it's, it's actually a, a horrible dive watch sorry matt um i i don't mean to to imply that it would actually be a useful dive watch but it would it would certainly be you know water resistant down to some ridiculous depth just because it is completely sealed in um so yeah it's uh it's kind of amusing we'll see what uh, we'll see what comes out of it though
1: the indestructible side of it reminds me a little bit of the for whatever reason the, the Casio G-Shock that uh, was worn by a, an indigo dyer in, uh, there's a, a book called A Man and His Watch, and uh, this this perfectly, I, I believe it used to be a white Casio, has taken on this incredible hue just because of the, the dye that this gentleman works with day in and day out. And of course, the gentleman's hands are, are dyed by the, the indigo that he's working with as well. Casios have earned their reputation for for a reason, as as being made of real tough stuff. If you want to get a quartz watch and you want it to be reliable, yeah, go with a the Casio. Uh,
0: they're suggesting that it it tends to wander by about fifteen seconds a month. I don't know that that's I don't know that that's that common. I think it it probably wanders less than that. But uh, you know, over the ten year period, it's certainly going to have wandered by uh, by multiple minutes. Uh, it's or uh, maybe even even significant minutes. So we'll see what happens. And of course, it also isn't going to do, you know, be able to uh, keep track of um, of that horrendous daylight savings time that we have to deal with on a regular basis. Although maybe by the time this dies, we'll have finally abolished the uh, the daylight savings time system. So we'll see. Who oh, no, knows? So hopefully, we'll time. have that
1: abolished by the time this Kickstarter actually starts shipping.
0: Yeah, that'd be nice. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Doubtful, but nice. <laughs>
0: I, I sadly, it's it's unlikely to happen in Canada, but I, I know Europe is is quickly moving towards uh, the idea of abolishing daylight savings time. So mm-hmm. hopefully, they do, and that catches on around the rest of the world.
1: Yeah, it would certainly save a lot of lives.
0: It, it certainly would, and uh, stop pissing me off on a on a yearly basis.
1: Oh, and there are more accurate Casios out there as well. With the thermo compensated and radio controlled, and, and all that sort of stuff as well. Uh, if you if you want to get into the, the higher price tiers of the Casios that are out there.
0: But of course, those probably aren't going to last quite as long battery-wise either. So uh, this mm-hmm. is probably one of the longest in terms of battery life, which is why it's appropriate in this case.
1: And it's impressive how far they've, they've come with the analog quartz watches out there as well. with A, a number of, of movements now on the market that can get up to 10 years of battery life
0: and in terms of accuracy it's it's impressive as well i th- was it seiko released a, a super accurate uh, quartz watch this year and i think they're they're talking about it giving up less than a second a year something like that it's uh, it's quite impressive
1: i don't recall the, the specific watch it might have been citizen as well. i don't know if citizen or seiko but uh they a number of companies have certainly strove to make incredibly accurate watches Then, of course you have the the outliers who actually have uh, shrunken an Atomic Timekeeper down to uh, the almost watch size. So some will, will pass it off as a watch. But uh, that that is also, likewise, impressive. I believe HopTruff was, was one of them, and then uh, another firm out of Hawaii as well. Yeah, I'm not
0: sure you can convince me to wear an Atomic watch on my wrist. I, I think the, the radio-controlled watches are probably probably as as good as you need, but not sure that i need to, to actually put an atomic watch on my wrist
1: well your apple watch is pretty darn close in terms of accuracy it's it's kind of absolutely uh, yeah. it's almost eerie when you get a whole bunch of them lined up in a row on the same face particularly if you're using like the one of the cartoonish faces the, the mickey mouse or the, the minnie mouse and they're all tapping their foot precisely
0: in sync it, and that's just it these days obviously you know if you need an accurate timepiece look at your phone it's picking up time from the cell serv- cell provider and that's getting time from the GPS system so it's uh which is getting time from the most accurate atomic clocks in the world so it's it's pretty it's pretty unlikely that your phone is going to be off by any significant amount and if it is then it's probably been unable to connect to any kind of network for a significant amount of time
1: and it's notable just how far that technology. Well, I shouldn't say the technology itself. How far cell phones and and smartphones have have come in such a short period of time? Because the early iPhones were were terrible timekeepers.
0: But then they also weren't. They didn't have GPS units in them, and they also probably weren't contacting the cell providers as often because they wanted to save on battery life and things. So, mm-hmm. yeah, the it's amazing how much of, uh, how much advancement we have we've had in 13 years in terms of of being able to connect to the network and get quote unquote frivolous. Updates like time updates, right? And um, and so yeah, you're right. It it's amazing how much of a how much of a gain we've had in that time.
1: Now the Casio F91W is among one of the most mass produced timekeepers on the planet. On the complete opposite end of the spectrum, we have George Daniels, who produced less than thirty pocket watches entirely by hand in his lifetime. And uh, an interesting article published on watches by SJX recently uh, showcased uh, a watch that he was not able to complete uh, before he passed away. It is a, a part of the, the Daniels Trust. It is currently on display at the Clock and, and Watchmakers uh, Museum exhibit in, in the Museum of Science in London. And it's just, I find this to be a, a really a fascinating piece of horological history. And it provides some insight in, into the, the process and, and craft uh, of Daniels that uh, we, I would say, really wouldn't have otherwise. This is this is a, a piece of, of horological history that is sort of frozen in time.
0: It's interesting because this is probably, I guess you could say this is actually the rarest of the Daniels watches because it's nearly complete but isn't actually complete so um it it you know in some ways it's even rarer than the the ones that he did finish and as you say it's it's interesting because it presents a sort of time capsule of a master watchmaker partway through finishing a watch although i i haven't had a chance to really dig into this article and i'm not sure how much detail it actually goes into um but it looks like it is um, you know, large part of this is actually complete. It's it's not as though, you know, this is let's say five or six parts and a and a main plate. Uh, there there's significant work that's been done on this watch. It looks like the tourbillon and cage and and everything has already been finished. Uh, the barrels are there. Like there's there's a significant amount of work that's been done on this watch. So it, d- does the do do they go into exactly what needs to be done at this point to um you know to turn it into a functioning watch or is it uh uh do they do they not really go into that
1: they do detail the the various components that were were not yet complete and uh the, as this is owned by the the Daniels trust uh, they will actually be turning the watch over to Roger W Smith who was George Daniels' sole apprentice and he will be carrying this piece out to completion as he did for a number of timepieces that bear the Daniels name uh, that were produced towards the end of, of Daniel's life, and uh, even on past uh, his passing. So he will be at some point in, in the future completing this watch, and uh, it's unknown yet whether it will be sold off or not. But I imagine it would be sold uh, at some point to help perpetuate the the, the Daniel's trust and, and keep mm-hmm. that going on long into the future. And I have some mixed feelings about this. I can see both sides of the the coin. I I would just hope that uh, before uh, beginning down that path that Smith would document in in detail with with photographs and and measurements and and whatnot, uh, all the the various components and and whatnot, and the the state that they're in right now, just so that we can uh, maintain this this snapshot in in time of of George Daniel's process. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. I think it would be nice to make sure that there's some documentation of it. Although, as you said, this is certainly wouldn't be the only watch that um, that was made or finished after Daniel's passing. Uh, certainly a number of the anniversary watches that were made, I think it was the anniversary watch, uh, they were finished after, that series of watches was finished after uh, Daniel's passed. So th- this certainly wouldn't be the first time that some of, you know, watches with his name on it uh, were completed uh, without him. Um, obviously, this is significant just because it's a pocket watch and it's a one-off of of this of this particular piece. I'm, as you say, it's it's sort of mixed feelings as to whether or not to to conserve this piece as it stands today, or whether to sort of do a a partial restoration, partial finish and completion of it. Um, I I think it would be nice to see this piece completed. Um, if there was significantly less of this piece finished, I think I would have a bigger problem with it. But considering the fact that the vast majority of this watch has already been finished and it was finished by Daniels himself, I'm, I'm less concerned about that. Like it's, I, I don't feel as though this is sort of a fraudulent piece, uh, because, you know, because Roger's coming and finishing it afterwards and, and it has George's name on it. Uh, I, I think that in this case it's reasonable, just because George has already done the lion's share of the work to really get this this piece finished and and working. Uh, like I, I'm pretty sure that this watch is could be used as a functioning watch right now, uh, just based on the parts that are in there. Like it looks it looks pretty.
1: Well, there's 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 no hairspring or, or balance, if I remember correctly, so it's it's not going to tick.
0: Okay, uh, okay, I I hadn't actually seen that, but it's it's not far off though. I mean it's. Um, you know, it's it's got the coaxial escapement in it. You know, uh, aside from springs, it's probably not. It really probably is not that far off from being able to actually tell some kind of time. Um, so I, I don't. I, I have fewer problems because of that, just because of how much of it has already been finished. Um, that, that concerns me less. And frankly, if it can be used as a way of uh, maintaining the trust and continuing to perpetuate that George Daniels trust. I think that in the long run, that's probably a better service to horology than, um, you know, than maintaining a, a watch that's uh, that's partially complete like this. I, I think that it, that will be far more uh, far more productive use of its um, its sort of abilities than uh, than sitting in a, a case in the science museum and and sort of looking weird that you know because it's it's partially finished.
1: And the one area where Roger is going to have to exercise the most artistic license in bringing this watch to completion is on the, the dial side of the watch, uh, because uh, there there are no drawings. Uh, nothing uh, exists for, for how Daniels envisioned this piece looking in the end. But there is enough uh, historical record and evidence of the way that, that he completed his watches and what the, those dials look like, and there's enough continuity and, and DNA within those that I think that Roger will be able to to strike the right note and and be able to make something that looks quintessentially uh, like a George Daniels timepiece.
0: Yeah, I don't think that's that's particularly challenging when you consider how close Daniels stuck to sort of the Breguet uh, aesthetics when it comes to pocket watches and that... Roger himself has continued that tradition and and stuck very closely to it, even with his wristwatches. I I, th- I don't think that's going to be a particular challenge, you know. I think we can we can all assume that it's going to be a frost silver dial with some uh, barley corn, mm-hmm. you know, engine turning on it and hand engraved numerals that are going to be inked. You know, I I don't think it's going to be particularly difficult to to get that. You know, maybe. Maybe there'll be some decisions to make there in terms of, you know, raised chapter rings or, you know, gold rings that are around it or something like that. But even then, there there isn't enough variance, I don't think, in in Daniel's work that, that that's going to be too much of an issue to do. Um, I think that's, that's all pretty, you know, pretty close to linear at this point. Mm-hmm.
1: In a sense, thanks to Daniel's consistency. There, uh, he, I think he gets to weigh in more on on the, on the finished dial of of this piece than say uh, Michael Crichton got to weigh in on the the book covers for for his posthumously uh, published books like Pirate Latitudes and, and Dragon Teeth.
0: Exactly, yeah, that's 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 a good a good comparison. Uh, Daniel's has set such a a solid uh, design language in his work um and not just frankly not just on the dial side even on the movement mm-hmm. side very uh, you know his you can you can take a look at one of Daniel's pieces and if you have even a basic understanding of the design language of watch movements you can very quickly see where, you know when a a piece is, is really designed by Daniel's and if you have even a slightly better understanding than that you can quickly tell the difference between uh, you know the Daniels pieces, which are more modern, obviously, and the older Breguet pieces, which he based his his design language on. So I, I don't think that's um, you know again I, I this is obviously going to be a Daniels piece uh, between the amount of work that was been that has been done here on um, on the the movement side of things, and then his very very strong design language when it comes to cases and dials. I think that somebody who, if you showed somebody 20 different Daniels pocket watches and this was one of them finished with Roger, I don't think that anybody would be able to point out this one uh, as being the odd man out in terms of whether Daniels himself actually finished it. I don't think that that most people would ever realize that uh, that this one uh, wasn't a a complete Daniels based on where I suspect this is going to end up going.
1: What I find particularly interesting about this this situation, too, with the the dial is that there was uh, an extensive interview that uh, Roger Smith had with George Daniels, uh, published by the the People's Archive uh, quite some time ago. And uh, at at some point in their their conversation with one another, uh, Daniels made reference to the fact that when, when he made a watch, he would always start with the dial and then design the movements around what he wanted that dial to look like. I don't know if that necessarily means that he would have a drawing or whether he would just have a picture in his mind. And given the state that this piece is in, the fact that Roger doesn't have anything to reference, there are no drawings as far as he can find f- for this watch. It must be the case that George Daniels simply had a vision in his mind of what he wanted a dial to look like, and then would, would work back from there. Although there are drawings of some of the other watches he has produced of the the dial side and whatnot but i, I find that somewhat curious and i don't know if that's a, perhaps a change in mentality or whether it's just uh an oversight or, or what have you
0: i i wonder if that may be that um that a drawing has been lost or you know maybe it was um um you know maybe it just we don't realize that this is what it's for mm-hmm.
1: that's what i mean by by an oversight yeah
0: yeah because I you know based on the way that he writes about it in watchmaking uh, I would be shocked if he hadn't created a drawing of the dial especially because as he's mentioned in a couple of different places including that uh, that interview that he starts he was always starting with the dial side of it before he designed the movement and so I would be shocked that if he doesn't have a you know a 2x scale drawing of this thing sitting somewhere and Again, it may be something that's been lost. It may be something that's been slipped into a book and nobody realizes it's there. Um, so I, I suspect at some point that drawing probably existed. But yeah, that's you know it's unfortunate we don't have it anymore. But it'll uh, I, again, I don't think it's going to be too challenging for for Roger to figure out.
1: And it may yet turn up too.
0: Absolutely, yeah. Who knows? I, I'm sure that uh, the estate probably has a, a significant number of drawings and notes that he and notebooks and whatnot to uh, to go through so it it is very possible that it uh, that it still shows up somewhere
1: well however this plays out i am looking forward to to seeing what smith decides to do with this piece and uh, i I trust him wholly with this there's not a better person uh, on the planet to be entrusted with this piece of, of horological history
0: Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, follow us on Twitter, at Off Hours. John can be found on Twitter at UnderTheLoop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore Hand.